Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 100B of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Touchstone, an interview with Dr. Bill Rawls. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. So, Matt, I'm really excited about episode two. This is the place where you were able to have a limey on limey conversation with Dr. Rawls, but even more importantly, you were able to bring up the information that we had learned from so many other Lyme disease experts who have gone on a Lyme disease journey. So can you share with our listeners a couple of the things you really enjoyed asking Dr. Rawls about as sort of an introduction to this portion of the interview? Well, Rich, one timely discussion Dr. Rawls and I had about Lyme disease was the disturbing similarity between COVID-19 and Lyme. We talk about how Lyme actually changes and adapts to each person that it infects, and the same is true of COVID-19. We also discuss how Lyme disease is typically believed to be a biofilm disease. However, Dr. Rolls believes Lyme is not a biofilm illness. One of the final things that we talk about is how traditionally we believe immune-boosting herbs can help Lyme disease, but Dr. Rolls feels immune-boosting herbs are not good for those who are chronically ill, and they need immune-modulating herbs to get better. Well, Matt, without further ado, let's go to episode 100B in your interview with Dr. Bill Rolls. Dr. Rolls, you mentioned in a recent video you did that the coronavirus is changing as it goes from host to host to host, meaning the coronavirus that started in China is different than the coronavirus we have here in the United States today. So is that same theory true for Lyme disease, that the Lyme disease Borrelia bacteria from Atsu the Iceman times is different than it is today? Lyme disease adapts to every host. So the microbe that you have adapts differently to your body than it does for Richard. You know, every, every, every person has, and, and Stephen Brunner did a good job of making this argument in one of his books that virtually every person has their own strain of Borrelia. So every time a microbe enters a new host, it's trying to adapt to that host. Um, and when I say adapt, you know, it's trying to get what it needs. Uh, and you always have to go back and say, well, what does a microbe want? Why does it want to infect us? It wants to get our resources. It wants to get our stuff. To do that, it's got to get past the immune system to do it. So it's going to try to manipulate the immune system. But again, killing the host isn't always in the favor of the microbe, you know? I mean, if you kill your host pretty quickly, it's not going to get out and spread you spread new microbes around. So there is an adaptation. So what we're seeing from you know the, this initial virus that, that entered the population um, is is different from the virus that we're seeing now. Um, and over time, now it takes a lot of time, but over time it will actually lose its virulence as it, it adapts better to a host. So as I mentioned, coronavirus, there are three strains of coronavirus that circulates around human populations virtually all the time. Um, and that's the, that and a virus called rhinovirus are the most common causes of the common cold. That's a well-adapted microbe that is really successful. It's working well for the microbe, you know? It doesn't kill the host. It just makes us miserable. Not enough to stay at home and, and have isolation. We get it out and spray it all over everybody we need, you know? And, and so that's a really well-adapted, successful host-microbe relationship. It's working really well for the microbe. 
It's not working so well for us, but it's not killing us either, and it's not enough to keep us in isolation. Um, so this thing is threatening enough. It's not well adapted enough. So it is, um, it, you know, it, it makes us sick enough and kills enough people that we say, ooh, we need to shut this thing down. It's bad. Um, so that, but this virus will adapt. How quickly it adapts, we don't know. You know, it may eventually have this thing that it just kind of blends in with the other coronaviruses that are causing illness. And, and um, it may attenuate over time. Um, so we'll just have to see. But, you know, there is a certain amount of uh, pathogenicity in a particular microbe too. You know, we haven't seen that completely with influenza. You know, we, we keep having new strains of influenza circulating in and, and, and it's adapting to make sure that it spreads from host to host. So, but, um, but typical everyday influenzas that people haven't been exposed to, have been exposed to, generally don't kill people. Um, a lot of people go to work with influenza. You know, um, if you've got a, but now that we're living in this day of chronic immune dysfunction, I think more people are getting sick. You mentioned earlier that some people just, and some doctors just treat symptoms rather than treating the underlying cause of their illness. We had a guest, Laura McLeod, who is now touting bee venom therapy as being an effective way to boost the immune system to fight back against Lyme and co-infections. What are your thoughts on using bee venom therapy to treat chronic illness? I think there's some thought, you know, I, I, that's one of the things that I, I, when my recovery, I was looking at everything, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I uh, basically lost my job when I couldn't take a call anymore. They asked me to leave the group, even though I'd helped found it. And I had this go starter practice and I really didn't know what was I was doing. My health wasn't that good and it was hard to make a living. And I really didn't have time to chase expensive therapies. Um, so I, I developed a criteria system for looking at different therapy options, um, and it had three criteria. One was efficacy. Was there evidence um, either, you know, that could even be hearsay. Um, scientific studies are, were the things that pointed to the fact that it may be beneficial. What's the toxicity potential of that thing and toxicity of administration of that thing? And what's the cost of it? Um, so when I looked at all those things, I looked at bee venom therapy, I looked at flying somewhere and getting ozone. I mean, I looked at everything and herbal therapy I kept coming back to because there were thousands of people that got benefit. There was good science showing that herbs had antimicrobial properties, even at that time. The toxicity was extremely low and it was cost effective and I could bring it to me. Um, so when you look at bee venom therapy, it does appear to have efficacy. There are quite a lot, there are many people now that have reported the benefit with Lyme disease, autoimmune illnesses, various kinds of things. So I think it does have, have a, a potential for something that we put on the table. But I would put it in a classify, classify it more as a heroic therapy because the potential for harm is relatively high. Um, you know, people have died from bee venom therapy. People do have anaphylactic reactions, and maybe not very common, but it's not something that happens with, with herbal therapy. Um, and the administration 
you know, you've either got to be stung by multiple bees or you've got to have, go to someone and have your bee venom injected into you, which can be pretty darn expensive. So I think it's something to put on the table. It's one of those things that I would start someone, you know, the first, the, the foundation is let's improve your lifestyle. Let's improve, uh, you know, the, 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 let's, let's clean up your environment. Let's get you on a better diet. Let's get you on herbal therapy. Let's try that for six months and see how far you can push that. And it's working. Let's keep going with that. But if that person is going, okay, I'm getting there, it's helped some, it's not getting me where I want to be, that's the point that you might look at some other heroic therapy. And I think bee sting would be on, bee venom would be on the table to say, okay, maybe, yeah, this is something that the, the you know, I, I'm not quite where I want to be. Can that give me the boost that carries me the whole way? Um, and so I'm willing to put down the box for that, and I'm willing to take that risk that I could end up in a hospital um, to, to get this therapy. Um, but people should go into it knowing that that risk exists, and it's not something to take lightly. Uh, so uh, so I, I think it's valuable. I mean, that I think everything out there is valuable. You just have to put it in perspective. Another thing that many of our guests have done, which frankly in the beginning sounded so wacky to me that now has become some, somewhat more acceptable, is using bioresonance and biomagnetism to treat Lyme. What are your thoughts on using those technologies to treat Lyme disease? Uh, I think they're valuable too. You know, it, it's, um, I, when you look at those three variables, uh, you're not talking about, you know, it depends on what kind of advices you're looking at expense. I think the potential for harm is really, really low. I think the potential, the, the proof of efficacy compared to herbal therapy and some other things is probably pretty low too. But because you, you know, but, but the body is energy. You know, we are beings of energy and we have these energy pathways. Um, and I think that these things can, can help us uh, balance our energies, you know, and, and whether you're looking at those kinds of things or acupuncture or any kinds of things that help our cells work better, help balance our system so our immune system works better, I think they're very, very reasonable. Um, but it's one of those things that you could do that and herbal therapy and, you know, change your diet and clean up your diet environment and all of those things. Um, so the potential for harm is very low. I would be surprised if people were completely getting well with that alone. Um, so I think you probably are going to want to do other things with it, but I think it is a reasonable thing to add on the list. Another common theme we found with our guests is that dental work is actually becoming a trigger for many people to their chronic illness. And yeah. when they have their dental work after they have a chronic illness, they seem to get worse with their symptoms. So what would you recommend for chronic Lyme's and regard to getting dental work, which is a requirement to stay healthy? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, every time you get your teeth clean, you get a shower of microbes into your body. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's uh, gingival microbes have been found in Alzheimer's disease, like arterial plaques and everything else. So they're, I, that was it's this this idea that the microbe extends throughout the body. I think is very very important. I found a study in 2015 
that, that uh, researchers had found that microbes from the gut, especially if you have dis, dis, uh, dysbiosis or you know, gut imbalance in your gut flora, uh, these microbes infect red blood cells, intercellular microbes, and they use that as a route to travel throughout the body. Um, and virtually all of us have some of these microbes in our red blood cells. So it's really common. But um, so, you know, when you get your teeth clean, you're getting a shower of microbes and, and that can, that, that's going to stress your immune system and cause extra work. If you're healthy, you know, you blow it right off and it's just not going to be a big deal. But if your system is compromised, if your immune system is struggling, that can be significant. And those microbes can end up joining the ones in your brain and in your heart and all of the rest. And if your immune system is disrupted, yeah, it's just one more thing, you know? So, um, so as far as doing that, yeah, we have to get our teeth clean, but, um, I, I, I take a, <laughs> I still, I'm kind of paranoid about this thing, but I take a good load of herbs every time I go. And for, for a couple of days after I have my teeth cleaned, uh, you better believe I do. Um, maybe that's a little superstitious or would be classified as superstitious by some, but I think there's enough, you know, I've, I've got enough evidence for the herbs and there's enough evidence about what happens when you have your teeth cleaned that I think it's a pretty reasonable thing. And I think it's a better option than taking antibiotics from most people. So Dr. Wilson, another, another theme we found and would like your feedback on is many people that have something artificial in their body, whether it be uh, a metal rod in their leg or most recently with our podcast guest, it's been breast implants, that they found that's kept them sick even when they do the right things like taking, taking herbs, having a good diet, and they've had to have explants and, and do things like that. And, end up finding mold in their breast implants. So what advice would you give to our listeners who, who have things that can be removed like breast implants in preventing them from getting better from a chronic illness like Lyme? Yeah, that is a tough one. You know, it, it, so, many, um, so many people, we, we end up with artificial things in our body. And, and it's that, um, you know, everything from amalgam fillings to breast implants to artificial hips, you know, we end up with a lot of artificial parts. And some of them are by necessity, but some of them, I mean, we've been pretty complacent about how we've introduced these things into the body. And I think this is where the concept of biofilm is, is valuable. You know, a lot of people talk about biofilm and Lyme disease, and I don't consider Lyme disease a biofilm illness. Um, the symptoms of Lyme disease come from the microbes manipulating the immune system and the fact that these microbes are buried throughout the tissues in our body. But if you, so biofilms occur on surfaces of things and implants of any kind are surfaces that microbes of every variety, not just the Lyme microbes, but most microbes will set up colonies on these things and then they shed out of these, these things, the biofilms and spread through the body. And it's just more work for the immune system and more opportunities for microbes to, to invade. Um, so it's not necessarily the biofilm is just harboring the Lyme disease. In fact, the Lyme disease microbes may not even be in there. 
but other microbes, streptococcus and everything else are getting in those biofilms and shedding into the body and, uh, and having pathogenic effects, especially if the immune system functions are disrupted. It all gets back to the immune system, you know? So uh, removing the, the, the implant can be a reasonable option if it's practical, but certain things like hip replacements and things like that, it's just not going to be practical. So I, I think you just have to do everything more intensely. Uh, you have to do the herbal therapy more intensely. You have to do things that get at that, um, that, that place. And, you know, and, and joints are a place that we do have biofilms, you know. I mean, I, I uh, poor health, I started having right hip pain when I was in my 30s, just from poor health. And retrospectively, I mean, I know I got some microbes in there and they just set up shop and set up biofilms. And, you know, and it, and it wasn't until years and years of herbs that I got rid of that. Um, and when I was late 40s, I thought, no, nah, you'll be having a right hip replacement uh, by the time you're 50. And, um, you know, I, that hip maybe bothers me a little bit more than left hip. I have to favor it a little. You know, I just have to be more careful about it. But um, I don't need a hip replacement and not planning on having one anytime soon. You know, most of those symptoms have gone away. I'm less symptomatic now than when I was in my 30s. Dr. we'd also like to get your opinion on IVIG. We had a woman, young woman named Alex Moresco on last week who said IVIG was her game changer after being sick for so long with chronic Lyme disease. So do you think that's a good option to consider in the Lyme tool belt? Um, yeah, it's, a, it's another one that I wrote about in the book. And, and uh, as far as inter, intravenous immunoglobulin therapy, um, basically what you're doing is you are taking the immunity of another person and introducing it into your system. You're introducing their antibodies into your system. Um, so if they have good antibodies against pathogens that you don't have, including Borrelia, um, it can help kill off those things. You know, plasma infusions are something that they're using in China and other places for COVID right now with good success, you know, taking plasma from people that have acute immunity to COVID and giving it to people who don't. So antibodies are transferable. Um, still goes on the list on, as one of those heroic therapies though, that uh, yeah, it can be really beneficial. Um, I think the chances of it completely eradicating the microbes from the body are small. So if that's all you're doing, then it's coming back. Uh, you may get a wonderful acute response, but it's coming back if you're not doing anything else. And that's the problem with it. You can't continue to do it because the high cost and high potential for side effects and the, the, the fact that you could be getting microbes from other people too. We all harbor microbes in our bloodstream. And you know, if you're getting, if, if that's a human, uh, uh, if it comes from other humans or even other animals, there's potential that you're going to get microbes from it that could potentially be harmful. Um, so it's, it's, it's not something to just take lightly and say, well, it's worked for this one person. Well, we ought to do this on everybody. Again, build your foundation, do everything you can, do the herbal therapy, do everything else, 
and then start looking at these heroic therapies that uh, may provide uh, more benefit. And, and there are a lot of them out there. You know, I mean, there are a lot of different options. What I see that I, I try to discourage people from doing, and I see it, I've seen so many cases of it, of people that do something like that. They jump from one heroic therapy to another, to another, to another. And every one of those things that they do has toxicity and they gradually wear their body down more and more and more. So in the long run, even though they have these bouts of wellness over years, they get sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. And I've just seen it over and over and over again. Um, so I, I just preach, build your foundation first build your immune system first. And then if you want to do these things to get a boost, to get to another level. So whether we're talking about bee stings, uh, IVIG, uh, y'all haven't asked me about disulfiram yet. Um, you know, these kinds of things. Yeah, build your foundation and, and then look to those things to give you a boost um, that might help you get to that next level of wellness. So Dr. Rose, let's talk a little bit about Detox. We've had many guests, especially recently, talk about using coffee enemas as an effective way to detox, which sounded totally bizarre to us at first, and we've heard it time and time again from our guests. So what do you think of coffee enemas and other detox methods as ways to supplement other means of care like herbal therapy? Um, personally, I'm not a huge fan of coffee enemas. I, I, you know, I didn't do them myself. Uh, coffee enemas are very invasive. Uh, there is potential that you can perforate the colon. There is potential that you can damage the colon. Um, but here's another thing. You know, we talk about biofilms and, and eradicating biofilms in the body. Well, you actually have a protective biofilm in your gut, in your colon, that protects you, <laughs> that you can't live without. And if you're doing lots of coffee enemas, you're going to strip that biofilm out and, and leave your colon unprotected. So I, I really worry about those people long term. Doing it occasionally, yeah, maybe that's okay. But I hear about people that are just doing it a lot and they kind of get addicted to doing it because they feel bad when they don't do it. I think that's kind of scary myself. Um, so yes, you can do some damage with coffee enemas. What you are doing is stimulating bowel flow, but I think you can do that with herbs like dandelion and milk thistle just as effectively. Um, basically, the caffeine in the coffee is, uh, is stimulating bowel flow in the liver, so it helps flush your liver. And uh, people feel better because they get a little bit of that, but also, you know, if you're eating a really bad diet and you flush all the bad bacteria that you've built up inside your colon, you'll feel better for several days. So any kind of laxative product or enema or anything else will make you feel better temporarily. And I think that's what people are, are, are feeling is actually they're getting rid of their load of bacteria in their colon, not necessarily from the profound detoxification that it's doing. So I think there's smarter ways to detoxify. You know, this acute detoxification, I think is not a good idea. Um, you know, a 10 day detox protocol should just be an introduction to help fine tune your body. Fine, detoxification should be a long term process. Our body is constantly detoxifying, it's just we overload it. So you stop overloading your body with toxins and you enhance the ability of your body to get rid of toxins. 
and your body will gradually detoxify itself. And that's, that's true with heavy metals or anything else. Um, so I think the gradual, I'm just a big fan of gradual continual detoxification instead of these acute detoxification protocols and products. Another thing that's become very popular, I shouldn't say popular, it's become very common on our podcast is chronic Lyme patients developing MCAS or mast cell activation syndrome. So what are your thoughts on chronic Lyme causing MCAS and techniques or methods people can use to overcome MCAS? Yeah. Earlier in our discussion, I talked about uh, the microbes manipulating the immune system and it's like they... Uh, you know, they, they infect white blood cells and they influence the white blood cell to send out abnormal cytokines that causes chatter, but it also redirects the immune system, right? So the microbes are trying to direct away all the, the resources of the immune system away from taking out microbes that have been infected or cells that have been infected by microbes toward other things. And one of the things that gets shifted toward is um, making us more acutely uh, sensitive to allergens and that uh, activates our mast cells. So you have this whole syndrome that your whole immune system is in disarray where you've got part of the immune system suppressed and part of the immune system overactive um, with, these, uh, with the microbes shifting things out. And um, that is, uh, so I, I personally, I think that's what mast cell activation syndrome is. And we, we do see it in a lot of people. Uh, Short-term therapies like antihistamines and that sort of thing can be helpful. Um, the frustrating I think, the fine thing I find is that a lot of people are sensitive to anything. They're sensitive to foods. They're sensitive to herbs. And it's just a very, very slow and delicate process for them to get back to that state of being able to take the herbs, of being able to eat normal food, of being able to live again. So, but I, I think it's the, the, you know, the microbes getting the upper hand and they're, they're shifting immune system functions. And that's why we're seeing it in this thing we're called calling chronic Lyme disease. Everything has a reason, and, and that, ha that has to be part of it, in my opinion. Dr. Roser, are other types of Lyme treatment that we would consider experimental, and some of which have had some people say that they worked really great, and other people say they haven't worked very well at all, one of which is called Lyme N. And we're curious to see if you've heard of it. We've had a, a guest, Christina Castley, try it, and she viewed this as being the, the saving grace. And then in the end, it didn't help, and it, it causes a real crash emotionally and physically for her because it didn't help. So are you familiar with Lyme N? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? I'm a little bit familiar with it. I've had trouble finding out about it, again, because I think Google is censoring everything. And <laughs> it was really hard to find very much information about it. Um, I try to be up on all of these things as much as I can. It appears to be uh, predominantly some sort of mineral supplements, but they're, it, it, it always bugs me. You know, I did find uh, they, they don't really have a website. There's not, it's really hard to find any information about what it actually is. And many times I have a hard time finding information. If people aren't transparent about what they're offering, that causes me to question something right up front. So if it's that good, tell me what it is. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it is one of those kind of hit or miss things. 
I think some people probably will have benefit, others won't. Um, but we have no really way of defining whether it's placebo or not or what it is. Um, so it sounds like the potential harm for it is probably pretty small. The cost is probably pretty small. But um, I think personally, I'd probably stick with my herbs. But I don't have any problem with people using it. Uh, again, there's three criteria. Is there efficacy? What's the toxicity? What's the cost? Um, not much efficacy there that I could find. Probably not much toxicity. Didn't look like the cost was very high. Try it if you want to. The only thing you've got to lose is the money you put into it. Another very common one is Lime Stop, which several of our guests have used. And again, some of our guests have had major success and others not so much. So have you heard of Lime Stop? And is that something that you would recommend as well? That's a new one on me. What is it, Matt? So Lime Stop, uh, from what we got off their website, it's a gentle therapeutic magnets are simultaneously applied to pressure points throughout your body. And then they stimulate those pressure points using magnets to, to retarget and train your immune system to kill off bacteria is, is sort of what they're describing on their website. Um, you know, I think it probably just that would go into the category of being a form of acupuncture or acupressure. Um, and I think there is value in those things. Again, it's kind of hit or miss. I mean, I've tried acupuncture a number of times for various kinds of things over the years, and eh, it helped a little bit. Um, I found that personally, I mean, the deal is <laughs> if you want to get well from Lyme disease, take personal accountability. You know, become proactive. Do the things you need to do. Get to know your body get to know your body and do the things that your body needs to get well. Everybody's out there scurrying around looking for somebody else to help them and somebody else to fix them. And there's always somebody there with a product waiting, ready to sell it to them, you know? And, and it's, uh, so it's, it's that thing of personal accountability. I mean, I, I, you know, I got a little bit of value in, in, in acupuncture, but I found it to be very expensive. You've got to go for multiple treatments, um, and it's not comfortable. I started practicing Qigong and, and really learned Qigong and, and learn how to move energy in my body and learn how to feel energy in my body. And, you know, it, it works as well as acupuncture or anything else. Um, it doesn't work as well as the herbs, but it does make me feel good. And I practice it regularly along with yoga. Um, I think Qigong is very valuable. So the magnet thing, you know, if you're affecting, if you're balancing those energy pathways in the body, the energy meridians, then the body is going to work better. The body is a collection of cells. All the cells in the body have to talk to one another for the body to work, including all the immune cells. Things are disrupting that. Stress is disrupting it. Bad food is disrupting it. And the microbes are certainly disrupting it. So anything that we can do to reestablish communication between cellular systems in the body is going to allow our body to function better and fight off these different kinds of threats that we all have to deal with on a daily basis. Another hot topic, Dr. Rolls, in the world today is elderberry. And you recently did a video about elderberry and coronavirus, and you clarified some of the misconceptions out there about elderberry. But 
Do you believe elderberry supplementation can have a positive impact on those suffering from chronic Lyme? Uh, I think it's one thing to throw in there. It's a really nice herb. It, again, it, it, it does tend to rev up cytokines a little bit more than some other herbs or revs up the immune system. Um, so astragalus, echinacea, uh, elderberry, I think you've got to be more careful with, with acute Lyme because what you're trying to do is not boost the entire immune system, but modulate the immune system. And that's the difference in some of these immune boosting herbs and the other herbs that we recommend that are more immune modulating, all right? So we've got a shift in the immune system that you've got inflammation and overactive parts of the immune system like mast cells, but then you've got underactive uh, immune cells as far as taking out um, the cells that are infected with microbes. So it's, um, so I think the immune modulating herbs have a little bit more value chronically than you do with the immune stimulating herbs. Um, common cold, that sort of thing, I think elderberry is, is extraordinary. And elderberry is so nice because children like it. It's a great one for kids. So I tend to reserve elderberry for um, everyday chronic colds and flus, that sort of thing. Um, but, and I think early stages of coronavirus, of, of COVID, elderberry is fine. Um, I don't have any problem with it. It's just when somebody has, uh, you know, this virus has revved up the system. There's, the war is so intensive that the cytokines that are the messengers being thrown around to the immune system are so intense that it actually becomes a destructive process, then something like elderberry or echinacea or probably even astragalus could actually accentuate that and make it worse. Um, so it's more the later stages of people who are really sick that I would worry about uh, elderberry. Um, so kids that have a mild infection, sure, elderberry is fine. So what, what are your thoughts about elderberry to help alleviate some allergy symptoms, whether it be from MCAS or just worsened allergies from chronic Lyme? I myself have tried elderberry, and, and, and I think it may have a positive impact on my overall seasonal allergies. Is that something that you think may just be um, psychosomatic, or do you think there's a real benefit there for elderberry to help with allergy relief? Uh, it's it's hard, probably hard for me to answer that question because elderberry wasn't a primary herb that I use in my protocols. I mean, I learned about so many things from just using them directly and studying them while I was using them and seeing how they felt and seeing what I had uh, what I had a response to. Um, and I, I took elderberry a couple of times, but didn't notice that much of a response with it. So I tend to reserve it more for viral infections and that sort of thing. But um, I don't know, you know, I, it, it hasn't been one that's been classically used for Lyme disease either, as far as the amount of evidence that we have out there. You know, there's so many good herbs that people have been using for a long, long time. Um, and I'll have to give Stephen Booner a lot of credit for that. I mean, his book in 2005, Healing Lyme, uh, started setting a standard of the value of herbs for Lyme disease. And I think uh, people like me and many others have built on that. Um, but now you've got this kind of economies of scale of, of 
thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have been using certain herbs that have found results. And now you've got studies like the ones coming out of John, Johns Hopkins and others that are showing the antimicrobial potential of these herbs. Um, so we, we're accumulating more and more and more evidence for certain herbs for Lyme disease and elderberries are just not on the list. Um, so it's not that it doesn't have value, it's just that we don't know as much about it as we do a lot of other things. So why not use those other things first? So let's talk a little bit about mold and Lyme disease. Some of the questions we get in our DMs often and private messages from, from people that follow us now are, they think they may be suffering from mold sickness, but they don't know the best way to proceed because is their home a moldy environment? Is it their workplace? Is it other places they're visiting? And the cost factor to test all those locations is, is a major concern. So is there a test that somebody can do to see if they've been exposed to mold, a blood test, any kind of test like that? Or what advice would you give someone who thinks they may be suffering from mold illness to make them worse in addition to Lyme disease? Sure. Um, mold is a sticky one, and it's one that I had to deal with. Um, I uh, bought an old office building when I first started that practice, and it was loaded with mold. And it was, <laughs> it was definitely an issue in my recovery. And I, you know, dealt with it on and off for for a number of years as far as fighting the mold in that building. Um, but yeah, yes, you can test for mycotoxins in the blood. Uh, there are different molds that produce different mycotoxins, um, but it's, it's exposure, you know? I mean, if, if, if you can test it all day, but if you don't get rid of your exposure, you're not going to get rid of the problem. And yes, it is a huge problem for so many people. I mean, I've talked to people all around the country. It tends to be less of a problem in drier areas, but uh, East Coast, where we've got lots of moisture, and we live in enclosed buildings that are just really notorious for building up moisture inside and their environments where mold live. Um, so, you know, the, the mold testing, finding out for sure, it's really hard. Um, and the, the one thing that I found most reliable when I was working with different people is I would say, look, if you've got an opportunity to go and live in an environment that is mold free for a month, go and do that. And if, if you're well, if you're feeling better by that month and then you move back into your other dwelling or other situation and start to feel bad again, you've got a mold problem. And it could be in the walls, it could be in the basement, it could, you know, and it's hard to get rid of. Um, newer houses tend to be better. Uh, but it's keeping those air conditioner systems clean, keeping the bathroom dry. Um, you know, I mean, we do things that, that people would probably think us weird, but um, uh, after my wife and I take a shower, we take a squeegee and squeegee the, the sides of the bathroom and, and take a sponge and wipe up the water and cut on a fan and dry it out pretty fast. Um, and... You know, we have a dehumidifier installed in the basement to keep the basement dry. And we've got the attic well ventilated. And, you know, we just do everything that we can to keep uh, the possibility of mold from forming. 
Um, the problem with a lot of mold is that people get it in the woodwork and they get it in the base, in the wallboard. And once it's impregnated in those things, it's really hard to get rid of. So you can have uh, companies come in and test for mold, which they usually find it if there's suspicion of it. Um, and they come in and, and, and they do ozone generators. And I did this in my office and it helped some, um, but I have that, but it was impregnated in the walls, you know, so we'd leave an ozone generator in there for the weekend and then come back and it'd be better for a few weeks, but then it'd get back again because it was in the walls and it was in the woodwork. And eventually I sold the building, thank goodness. <laughs> but, it's, uh, and people who are, have strong immune systems that haven't developed mold sensitivities do fine. But it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those things that uh, if you have a chronic condition and you have sensitivities to it, then um, any amount of mold is going to drive you crazy. And it is something to deal with. You mentioned using a dehumidifier and trying to reduce moisture, especially in parts of the country that are, are more, more wet. Now, if somebody's using an essential oil diffuser, do you think that has the potential to increase mold in a home because it's really diffusing moisture into the atmosphere? No, no, you're, you're actually doing, you, you know, with, with your essential oils, you've essentially got oil, oil. You put it in a base like Jehovah oil, boba oil or grapeseed oil or something like that. So, you, so basically what you're doing, you know, when, when we're looking at any plant source things, we're talking about phytochemicals. And plants use different phytochemicals for different things. You know, it's basically the natural defenses of the plant. So when we're talking about herbs, we're talking about a phytochemistry that the plant is using in its system. So it's generally water soluble. So there's some fat soluble components. So when we do an extraction, we use water and alcohol to get herbs. When you're talking about essential oils, not all plants produce essential oils. Um, so it's actually, it's, it's a repellent for bacteria and insects that they, the plant installs uh, little, uh, little vacuoles or blebs in the leaves and in the stems that when an insect comes along, it, you know, it releases that. Um, so it's an oil base. So it's, it's meant to, uh, you know, be volatile. So when it's released, um, it carries in the air around the plant to protect the plant. Um, and it's also meant to be um, uh, something that, you know, the oil kind of stays around on the plant. So when you're talking about herbs, and, and essential oils, you're talking about two different types of phytochemicals that different plants are using different ways. Um, so the essential oils are a little bit different. Because they're oil-based, they're a little bit more toxic, so certain ones you have to be more careful about. But they're oil, oil they're terpenoids of different varieties of terpenoids in different kinds of combinations. Um, so they're in oil, so you're actually blowing the oil out into the environment and not water. Um, and they can uh, displace mycotoxins in the air and reduce the mycotoxins in the air. They can kill mold, but I, you know, I never had much results with them. They're not going to eradicate mold and wallboard and boards and things like that within the dwelling, but they may temporarily 
uh, reduce it. Uh, one thing I found though is if you're using a lot of uh, essential oils and diffusers, you can get kind of a greasy film um, around you know your stuff inside your home, um, so you have to be careful about that. But most of them aren't bad. It depends on the oils you're using and the type of diffusers and how much you're diffusing out there. But it can help displace mold toxins. And breathing those things in can be really good for us too, as long as it's not at a toxic level. So some of the, the controversial topics that are out there today in the Lyme world, which many of our guests have felt they've been impacted by and aren't really backed by any, any doctors at this point, do you believe that Lyme disease can be spread from a mother to a child via, at birth? Yes, I think it is possible. And, and there is growing evidence that, that, you know, that has been more documented in literature. Um, and over the years, you know, all the numbers of families that I have seen with Lyme disease that I don't think the kids could have gotten anywhere else. Um, that being said, I don't think it's extremely common. You know, when you look at microbes, microbes choose their preferential route of transmission. You know, we've been talking about this coronavirus. It is, it's fast and dirty. You know, it, it gets in the lungs, it infects the lungs, and then causes you to cough and sneeze to spread so it can infect other hosts. Um, so Lyme disease preferential way of transmitting is by ticks and they you know get in the body and hang out and wait for more ticks to come along um, a closely related um, spirochete or, or or at least a distant cousin uh, syphilis shows sexual transmission and it very readily transmits through the sexual organs and it definitely can affect pregnancies adversely so Two different, the tale of two different spirochetes. One is spread sexually and definitely can cross the placenta. The other one has a preference for ticks and basically, you know, hangs around until another tick bites and then mobilizes to get on board that tick. That being said, they're all opportunists. They're all going to look for every opportunity. And, uh, you know, we're now finding coronavirus in hearts and brains and all through the body and and, um, you know, so it's going to look for every opportunity to infect cells that it can. Same with Borrelia. You know, if it can get through and pass uh, to an, another host uh, by a sexual route, you know, why not? It just doesn't specialize in that. So the evidence is this. When you look at people with Lyme disease and you check uh, a semen and samples, and vaginal samples, you find very, very, very low concentrations or no concentrations of Lyme, of the spirochetes from Lyme disease, the Borrelia, whereas syphilis, you would find them very readily. Um, so it's just less common. Um, it's not a preferred route. Yes, it can happen. Yes, it does happen, but it doesn't happen frequently. So I, you know, I, I always tell people, um, you know, if, if they're considering a pregnancy, try to wait until their symptoms are quiescent as much as possible, um, because I think that would reduce the risk of spreading the microbe. So putting aside the, the current times where pretty much everybody today is wearing a mask when they, when they leave their homes, 
Prior to this, many of our guests were, were telling us that they use things like VOG masks when they go out in public because they are so immunocompromised. So moving forward, when the coronavirus pandemic is, is calmed down and we're sort of back to a state of normalcy, do you recommend people that are very ill and chronically ill with Lyme disease wear masks like VOG masks to stay healthy when they go out in public? I think that's a possible consideration. You know, I, th I think we've crossed over into uh, a new time, a new day. You know, it, it's uh, people are going to be thinking differently. Me personally, I think people have been historically way too complacent about spread of microbes. <laughs> I mean, you know, microbes depend on us being socially interactive. Um, and that's always been true. You know, whether you're talking about smallpox, black plague, anything else, these things occurred where people were tightly packed together and very, very, very socially connected. And um, so I hope the future is that we're just smarter about things, about washing our hands, about how we have intimate contact with other people. You know, maybe one day you'll be able to get on an airplane and not be squished together like a sardine with everybody else on there. You know, it, it's um, how this plays out as far as, as sports events and concerts and everything else. Man, it's it's a hard one to figure out, but um, you know, here's here's the deal. I I think we're up to uh, I, I'm not sure what the latest statistic was. Maybe twenty or thirty thousand deaths um, from coronavirus so far, right? And we've had uh, five hundred thousand reported cases of coronavirus so far. So let's put this thing in perspective. So how many people do you think influenza has killed since October 1st of this year? Oh no. 54,000 people. How many cases of documented influenza have there been since October 1st? 57 million. Wow. Yeah. So we've been pretty complacent about these things. We've been spreading around. So even with a vaccine, we haven't eradicated influenza and it still kills a lot of people every single year. The vaccine is only 50%, 57% good. And, and, and that's in a good year. All right. So I think we're really complacent about microbes in our immune system. And it's time for people to start paying attention and say, Hey, you know, I need to be stay tight. I need to be watching my immune health and taking care of myself and I need to be more thoughtful. I mean, I've been doing it for a long time. And, I, you know, I wash my hands. I'm careful about, I, you know, you can't not hug people or not shake people's hands. But I am pretty vigilant about whether that person is ill or not or has that potential. And I don't really like to be crowded in spaces with other people. And, you know, when I'm at a restaurant, I really would prefer to be spaced out a little bit. And, I, you know, it's, it's that thing of not wanting to be antisocial. I'm not an antisocial person at all. I love being around other people. But I think this is a wake-up call. It's time for us to be smarter, all of us. And maybe, yeah, there are certain people that should be really vigilant about wearing masks and that sort of thing because we're, we're hit by things all the time. It's not just coronavirus, it's influenza and so, 
so many other viruses out there. There are so many things that want to use us as a host that it's just remarkable. And they've always been there. And that's why you need a healthy immune system. So Dr. Rose, let's talk about collagen. What is collagen and why is it important to protect collagen for people that are suffering with chronic Lyme? Um, yeah, collagen is basically just a, a, a protein and it's an important protein because that's what supports everything in your body. You know, you can think of it as just uh, the structural framework that holds us together. Protein, elastin, and other similar molecules uh, are made of proteins and, and there are also some carbohydrate components in there. And it's the structure, it holds our cells together. It, uh, it supports our skin. It holds our brain, and our brain is full of collagen. Uh, it is support for our muscles, support for our bones. So we're using collagen throughout the body. Um, collagen is a really great resource, the component of the amino acids in collagen for microbes. So microbes like mycoplasma, Borrelia, they all like collagen, and they're manipulating the immune system to break down tissues so they can get at collagen and breaking down cells so they can get at collagen. Um, so your body can make collagen. I mean, if you have to depend on just dietary collagen, you wouldn't be around very long. So just getting healthy protein sources, your body can use those protein sources and use those amino acids to, uh, to create collagen. Um, when you take collagen as a supplement, basically you're giving yourself a little bit as a, of a shortcut. Now, you know, if you take collagen, you're breaking down most of it. So you're not absorbing whole collagen particles and reassembling those. Basically, you're breaking down all the components, but eating collagen, using a collagen supplement, uh, bone broth, that sort of thing, basically what it's doing is giving you all the raw materials to build new collagen. Now, this thing that the microbes are just ripping our collagen apart and tearing us apart, you know, it, it's not, the microbes are small, all right? <laughs> it's, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're about 100 to 1,000 times smaller than one of our cells. So they're really small and they don't take much. So this thought of them munching on our collagen and just eating all of our collagen up isn't really accurate. It's the immune reaction that is generating inflammation that's breaking down collagen, and, and that is increasing collagen turnover. So it's not necessarily the microbes are eating it, though I did have, you know, I would sleep at night and wake up with these visual images of microbes munching on the collagen in my knees. But, uh, but it's, it's more just the inflammation. It's a reaction to the collagen that's causing increase, or reaction to the microbes that's causing, causing increased collagen turnover. And, and that's what the problem is that um, ultimately, uh, you know, and, and so, yeah, taking collagen, I think, is a very reasonable thing to do. There's been an article that came out, I think, last week in the New York Post about high-dose vitamin C intravenously helping those with coronavirus, and that's been in the Lyme world for quite some time, that high-dose vitamin C can help people with chronic Lyme. So what are your thoughts on high-dose vitamin C for both Lyme and also potentially coronavirus? Um, 
Yeah, your body uses a lot of vitamin C when it's stressed. And it's one of the things that your immune system uses. You use, you use vitamin C in a lot of ways, but it, it, it and vitamin D and other things are really important to an immune response. Um, so you need more of it if your body is challenged in any way by any kind of stress. Um, the problem with using vitamin C chronically is that it can, uh, you know, it, it can act as an, as an oxidant also. So it can have some free radical effects. So you've got to be careful with it, especially intravenously. Um, you can really burn your veins out if you're using chronically. Um, it is pretty harsh and it can be pretty harsh to the GI tract. So I typically used it more um, for acute situations. Um, you know, I would take more vitamin C when I was having a relapse or, and I think it's a very reasonable thing to do with a, a viral syndrome of any kind. You know, working a primary care practice, I got exposed to cold things all the time, even when all cold viruses and influenza viruses. And I can remember when I was in my 30s, just getting clobbered two or three times a year by a bad cold. I started the herbs and, um, you know, just becoming uh, an integrated physician and becoming subtlistically certified to learn about some protocols and developed a protocol that you know, if, if, if I was exposed to something, as soon as I got just a little bit of a nasal irritation and throat irritation, I would start loading up on our product, Advanced Biotic, that has andrographis and garlic and all this stuff, and then reishi mushroom, and, and I would just take a load of that stuff, along with a thousand of vitamin C every four hours, uh, or every hour up until four to six hours. So I was taking a lot of it. Um, you, you absorb vitamin C pretty readily. Um, I think you get a more intense dose when you do it intravenously, but if you just take it, you know, it can do a lot of good things. I typically take the buffered vitamin C, the ester C version, so it won't irritate my stomach. Um, but it really hit home. It's, um, there was a rat study. Um, many, many years ago that I saw that, that really uh, put, the, put this in, 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 uh, in, in light that uh, primates and humans are the only ones that don't make vitamin C. And it's because we had it in our diet. It's kind of like the folates, you know, we had it in our diet so much that we just gave it up. We still have that, the, the, the sequence of how to make vitamin C in our genes. We just can't get to it anymore. Um, so it's, uh, so we don't make vitamin C, everything else makes vitamin C. And there was a rat study that they took a rat and they measured the level of vitamin C that it was producing on a daily basis. And it would be the, about the equivalent of a human taking 200 to 500 milligrams a day. So that's all for a non-stressed rat, right? So when they stress the rat, when they really stress the rat out, it ramped up its vitamin C production to the equivalent of us taking 21,000 milligrams a day. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. So, it, you know, that really hit home that, hey, you know, when we're stressed, we really burn some vitamin C. So, yeah, acute situations, I definitely take vitamin C. I've read studies that some are using up to 16,000 a day, which might be just fine. Again, you know, I think at really high levels, you start getting into some toxicity as far as 
uh, either burning out your veins or irritating your GI tract. So I don't see it as a long-term therapy. I think you do have to be careful with it. But short-term, it's good stuff. What are your thoughts about taking a lower dose, potentially 500 or 1,000 milligrams orally uh, on a regular basis just to keep your, your, your stay healthy and not get sick as often? Yeah, whether you're getting in, in, in a diet or as a supplement, I think that's a very reasonable thing to do. If you're eating a really healthy diet, you're getting that. Um, you know, there are a lot of good sources of vitamin C. Um, you know, but um, yes, I think one or the other is, is very reasonable. Another topic that is very common with Lyme disease, and we've hit with almost every one of our guests that we've, we've talked with over the last 100 podcasts, is Lyme causes you to get stressed. And many people describe it as uh, they're stressed, they get depressed, they have that fight or flight mentality going on. And we've learned that there are some herbs, and I think you referred to them earlier, and, and they're called adaptogenic herbs, which balance out your stress levels. And I think many, many people with chronic Lyme can benefit from those herbs, but they just don't know about them. So we don't have that in our, in our bio, on our link, but we're going to add the, the one that we both agree with is good by you into the link in our bio for those that are listening and need to balance out their stress levels. There is a solution or an herbal protocol that can be taken to balance out your stress to help you not be in a constant stressed out mode while struggling with Lyme disease, right? Yeah, the adaptogens are really wonderful for that. And uh, there are what I define as energizing adaptogens, and then there are more calming adaptogens that tend not to be stimulating. Um, and those are the ones that we use in our formulas. There are many different adaptogens and many herbs that have adaptogenic properties, which means they make you more stress resistant. Um, but the top of my list that I typically put in our products are reishi and cordyceps. Uh, Chinese skullcap has some adaptogenic properties, as does andrographis. So even though some herbs aren't defined as a true adaptogen, they still have some of these properties. The first product I ever created was um, a product that I combined and uh, ashwagandha, which is a wonderful calming adaptogen with um, a, a theanine, L-theanine, which is an amino acid you find in green tea. And L-theanine keeps, competes with glutamic acid and exciting neurotransmitters in the brain. So it's not suppressing the GABA system, it's working on the opposite side of the table. And then I combined it with some calming herbs from philodendron and, and magnolia. And that product is just, it's just wonderful. It just does so many great things for people. Um, but it's, um, but ashwagandha, uh, uh, cordyceps, reishi. Cordyceps and reishi are technically medicinal mushrooms, but they still, so they aren't technically an herb, but they still do, are defined as adaptogens because of the properties that they have. There are many good adaptogens. You have to be careful of the stimulating adaptogens in Lyme disease. And uh, when I first created our products, I put rhodiola and eulothera in the products, and it was keeping a lot of people up at night. Um, and so I ended up taking them out and putting some other calming adaptogens in there. So rhodiola, ginseng, eulothera, really nice adaptogens, but they're energizing as are many of the, uh, of the, so you've got to be careful with which adaptogens you're using in Lyme disease. Later, for good health, 
Rhodiola is one of my favorites. Um, I love Rhodiola. It's a great herb, energizing adaptogens. And you know, so when we're talking about the herbs, it's really interesting. You, I love asking that question, why, and then trying to figure out the answer. Um, you know, it's like, why do herbs have all these properties? Well, it's because the herbs are creating these things using these chemicals to protect themselves against microbes, against various kinds of stress. And they're using them to balance all of their energies and balance their, their hormone pathways. And I think that's, that's really interesting. So different herbs raised in different environments are going to have different properties. So rhodiola is actually from the north. It's around, found around the Arctic Circle. Siberia is the most common place to find it. Though interestingly, you can also find it in the Appalachian Mountains around North Carolina, and you can find and, and up the Appalachians. Uh, so higher elevations, uh, stressful environment, harsh, stressful environment. So it's really good for modulating stress. Um, and, but it's not as good an antimicrobial. So, but we take cat's claw or uh, Brazilian pepper tree from down the Amazon, and those, my, those plants are, have, are just being confronted with microbes all the time, so they're producing a lot more robust antimicrobials. So it's really interesting to look at the uh, evolutionary origins of some of the plants in, in, in relation to the properties that they provide. Do you think that essential oils, in addition to herbs, can be helpful in reducing stress and, and people that are just overwhelmed from Lyme disease, uh, such as lavender and other oils that can be used to diffuse? Absolutely. Personally, I like the herbs better, um, just because they're more convenient. Um, essential oils, uh, you have to be careful. You can take essential oils orally, but you have to be really careful because they're so much more toxic to the GI tract. But um, the, the essential oils are, are really nice for, uh, for aromatherapy, for putting drops on your pillow for, for lavender. Um, tea tree oil has some nice antimicrobial properties for we talked about using them just to reduce mycotoxins in the air. Uh, so the essential oils have some really nice properties. I, I've explored them for years. I use various different ones. Uh, you can use some essential oils and there is a nice product that you can, uh, that's really getting a lot of notice these days. That's a, it's actually a very nice essential oil product. And that product is called CBD oil. So you're getting the essential oils from the cannabis plant, but interestingly, you're getting the ra a range. When you look at a, a well-done CBD product, you're also getting a range of terpenoids that you find in other plants. And you find L-pinene and L-limonene and things that are found in many other plants. So it's interesting that a lot of different plants use the same chemicals to solve problems. So many of your plants are producing the combinations of your essential oils you may find in a plant in Europe, you may find those same things somewhere else on earth. Um, so they're using a lot of those same chemicals. So yeah, you know, they do have some really wonderful properties. So one last question for you before I hand it back to Rich. Um, and that question is all of these studies that are being done to investigate 
whether it be an antibiotic or disulfiram, to repurpose these existing drugs to treat Lyme disease. Do you think any of those are truly going to be successful? Because they're sort of narrow-minded, in our view, in regard to they just treat either like Dapsone is just treating Lyme disease, Borrelia. Um, disulfiram is treating maybe two or three you know, co-infections, but none of them are really addressing the bigger problem, which is the immune system in the chronically ill from Lyme disease. Yeah. So do you think we're just kind of like spinning our wheels with these studies that we're doing and coming up with these new things like, although they're not new, but these new results that, hey, azlocillin may be the next best yeah. thing, which you had noted that it's already been tried and failed. So are we wasting our time, do you believe, going down that avenue? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think how we're looking at this whole problem is just really, really dysfunctional because you've got most of the infectious disease people and everybody else that define Lyme disease in a, as an acute illness. And, but most of the people that are out there struggling that define themselves as having Lyme disease have chronic illness. And all of those people, because of the infectious disease people and everybody else defining it as an acute illness, are looking for that magic silver bullet that will kill the microbe that's making me sick. And, they, and, and, and <laughs> the message I would have is you always have to turn it around and say, okay, this is a chronic infection, therefore the primary thing that's going on here is immune dysfunction. And if you're just throwing silver bullets at the microbe, especially a microbe, then you're never going to make people completely well. You might be making people better for a while. Some people might recover with antibiotic therapy or disulfiram therapy. Um, that if they, you know, if they're having a rebound in their immune system at the same time, some people might get well. But I don't think that's the thing that we're going to see overall. I think you know we're going to see a whole lot more people out there just jumping from one thing to the next. Um, disulfiram. You know, it's, it's, it's out there, it's a sulfa drug. All of your sulfa drugs are going to have antimicrobial properties and your sulfa drugs still have a range of antimicrobial properties. You know, there's some of the drugs that have uh, a lower tendency for drug resistance. Um, the sulfa drugs don't really do a very good job with really bad pathogens like something like you wouldn't want to treat somebody with really, really severe pneumonia with disulfiram. Um, but it might be more suppressive for these chronic infections. Um, a few reports I've heard from people is that the side effects were really terrible. And I, I, I'm, you know, historically, disulfiram is not a drug that people really want to take. I mean, it hasn't been very successful in the alcohol population. You know, just to uh, for complete information, um, disulfiram is a is a drug that's been marketed for many years as a, a, under the trade name uh, Anabuse, and it blocks alcohol dehydrogenase. So, people that uh, take Anabuse disulfiram that have an alcohol problem, if they drink alcohol, it'll make them really really sick. But the problem with the drug has always been nobody wants to take the drug because the drug makes them feel sick. And they don't want to feel sick, so they don't take the drug. And I think we're going to be running into the same kind of problem. And it's like, uh, you know, two, two, two weeks of disulfiram isn't going to do it. It's going to take weeks and weeks and months and months. And you can do that with yours, but I don't think very many people are going to be able to tolerate that with disulfiram. 
so it's 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 uh, so we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. I mean, I I try to be open-minded to everything. I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen a lot of things come and go. And the one thing that seems to stay is herbal therapy. Uh, the problem with herbs is that it doesn't work fast. People want a quick fix. It doesn't work fast. It takes a long time. And you have to do all the other things to support your immune system. You know, it took me five years to recover completely. Um, it was an uphill battle full of lots of relapses. And I landed back on my face so many times I don't even want to think about it. But it's that patience and persistence, and I was able to crawl out of the hole and get well. And, 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 you know, and I think that's what herbal therapy offers. But because it is not the easiest route, I think people are always going to be looking for that magic bullet. Well, Dr. Rose, we want to thank you for your time. As you know, we are your biggest fans. You were one of our first guests when we started this podcast about a year ago. And ever since then, we've just been totally fascinated by your work and your, your brilliance. So we really want to thank you. And this 100th episode just means so much to us that you were able to join us and celebrate with us to continue wow. to spread awareness and, and help others that are suffering with chronic Lyme, fibromyalgia, you name it, with all these things that you offer to help people. So thank you so much. Well, yeah, thank you for the opportunity for helping me reach people. And, and you know, my perspective is different because I was so ill because I had every symptom of this thing and I, I, it forced me to think outside the box and think about it very differently and think very deeply. And my life as a physician has been totally changed ever since. And, you know, once you cross that line and you see things how they are, it's like your, your eyes open up and you just can't go back again. And you ask questions that are different. And you, you look at things in a different way. And, and that's just how it is now. Um, so I'll keep working to try to help other people understand that. So thank you guys for giving me that opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with Dr. Bill Rawls. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Rawls, please visit his Instagram page at RawlsMD. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, we here at Tick Bootcamp have created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the Blueprint. We would appreciate it if you would contact us with any suggestions you have for improvements to the Blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our listeners, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.